This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'm Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in Goldman Sachs Research. For this week's episode, I'm delighted to welcome back Jan Hatzius, the firm's chief economist and global head of research, to discuss the economy, takeaways from Jackson Hole, and his views on economic growth and inflation. Jan, welcome back to the program. Hi, Allison. Good to be on. So let's start with last week's Fed conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is, of course, a closely watched annual meeting held by the Kansas City Fed. What were your key takeaways from the conference? And did anything Chair Powell say surprise you? Not much, no. It was pretty much in line with what we had thought coming out of the minutes of the last FOMC meeting in July. I think if you take what Chair Powell said and what we saw in the minutes, there are two key points about the timing of tapering of asset purchases. One is that they want to get started this year, which basically means that they probably have to announce by November. And number two, according to the minutes, they will provide advance notice of tapering, which basically means that they can't really announce it in September. So that really only leaves the November meeting. Obviously, that could change if we saw you know, shifts in the economic outlook, something very negative happening. It would be delayed, of course. But our baseline is that we'll get a November announcement and a December start to tapering. It's a little bit less clear how quick the tapering would occur. We haven't gotten as much indication about that. Our baseline is that they reduce purchases by $15 billion per meeting. So if they start from $120 billion a meeting, that would basically take them down to zero by October next year. There are some people who want to go faster, but that I think still an open debate. And ultimately, we think it's probably going to be something more like $15 billion. That would then mean that by the fourth quarter of next year, you could, in theory, start to hike rates. They're not going to be hiking while they're tapering QE. But for that, you would probably need to see significantly higher inflation and somewhat stronger growth than what we have in our forecast. So in our forecast, it takes until maybe third quarter of 2023 before you then get the first rate hike. But that's much more uncertain, and it really depends on the economic outlook and what we see in the numbers. So let's talk about growth. You've had a strongly above consensus call for U.S. growth for much of the year, but you've recently taken your forecast down. What's behind those revisions, and do they mark an important shift in your growth expectations? Yeah, I think it's always important when there's a change in direction, and there is a change in direction in terms of you know, both where we are relative to the consensus, partly on the back of our downward revisions, and we've taken 2021 down by about a percentage point. We were at seven or a little above seven, we're now at six percent. That's one shift. On net, the consensus has been revised up in 2021 so far. So that's why we're now a little bit below the consensus. And if you look at the sequential pace of growth, we now think that the peak is probably behind us. And that's true for the quarterly GDP numbers, just about. It's also true for the business service. I think both have probably seen the highest levels and probably going to decline from here. And that's always going to be an important shift for markets. What are the drivers of the shifts that we've made? The main driver really has been virus-related. The rebound in virus cases in the U.S. has been 
certainly bigger than we had thought several months ago. The impact on activity has still been reasonably limited, but there has been some impact, and we've seen somewhat more as the Delta wave has progressed. And you know, it's probably just going to take longer, especially in the service sector, for activity to get back. We already saw some signs that, for example, the return to office was pretty slow, even during the period when enthusiasm about vaccinations was probably at a peak. And with this renewed setback, of course, you've got to believe that it's going to take even longer. And we built that into our forecasts a little bit more. Then the other thing I'd say is beyond the downgrade that we've made to our numbers, we've always had a pretty subdued growth forecast in the second half of 2022, basically because of the payback for the very large amount of fiscal support that we're getting in 2021. So we've only got one and a half to two percent sequential growth in the second half of next year. That's not a change, but obviously, as we're moving closer to that, it's also becoming more relevant for markets and for policymakers. And what about other countries outside of the U.S.? We've also been downgrading forecasts there. So what's driving the weaker growth elsewhere? In some places, I mean, mainly in Asia, we really haven't made significant changes elsewhere. But in Asia, we've taken down China, most importantly, on the back of the Delta outbreak and, you know, much smaller numbers than in the U.S. in terms of, you know, virus cases. This is a very small fraction, but China is still trying to achieve basically zero COVID. And that's meant some pretty significant restrictions on activity in the service sector. So we now think that third quarter sequential growth is probably only going to be something like one and a half percent annualized. That's come down significantly. We do think that as the numbers in China have also improved, again, as far as virus cases are concerned, there will be a significant rebound. Policymakers are providing support, but nevertheless, it's going to leave an imprint in the annual numbers. So a few tenths less in terms of growth, not eight and a half percent, but maybe you know, 8.2 percent, eight and a quarter percent, those kinds of numbers. Then we've had some pretty significant outbreaks elsewhere in Asia as well, more serious in Southeast Asia and, you know, with very bad health outcomes. And of course, there are economic consequences as well. And then Australia, also some significant lockdowns. So it's all been very much COVID related. And, you know, the news has just been worse than we had expected and than what we had built into our numbers. Europe continues to do pretty well, despite the renewed outbreaks. We you know, still think that the European recovery is progressing quite well. UK continues to progress pretty well, despite the relatively high numbers there. Latin America, the virus numbers actually have been generally better. And that's also shown through in somewhat better economic numbers. So you, know, you look around the world, and there are lots of different sort of trends and lots of different virus situations and economic consequences from that. So it's no longer quite as synchronized on the upside and on the downside as it has been for much of this pandemic. Right. And just a little bit more on that, because we had the big downturn last year, the big rebound this year. Now you talked about we're seeing the peak and deceleration, but can you just put this all in perspective in terms of where are activity levels in the U.S. and globally relative to where they were pre-pandemic? Yeah, I would say among the big economies, there are three groups. One is China, stands by itself. It's back at the pre-pandemic trend and has been 
for several quarters. Now, of course, they're seeing a bit of a setback at the moment, but they're basically at the pre-pandemic trend. The US is at the pre-pandemic level, approximately, slightly above, but basically where it was in early 2020. But at the pre-pandemic level means 2 to 3% below the pre-pandemic trend. So that's sort of the output gap that, at least from a GDP perspective, that you would assess. I think from an employment perspective, it's somewhat more, but that's what you see in the US. And then most other big countries are still significantly below the levels that you saw pre-pandemic and catching up in some cases, but a long way to go. So you take the European countries and growth in Q2 and probably even in Q3 is going to be quite strong, but still going to leave them well short of where they were and certainly where they could have been in the absence of COVID. So I think I would have described your view coming into the year as very bullish because of the meaningful rebound we were expecting from the you know trough of the pandemic last year. How would you describe your view right now globally in terms of how you're thinking about growth? I would say it's still pretty bullish in Europe. I see a lot of upside potential in some of the places that are still pretty deeply in the hole, and Europe is in that category. I still think that vaccinations are going to make a big difference. We're still finding that the vaccines do a very good job against severe outcomes, despite the fact that against the Delta variant from an infection perspective, they're not as good as against previous variants. But as more and more of the world gets vaccinated and activity is still quite depressed in a lot of places. Yeah, I still think that we are going to see large amounts of improvement. We're not as far away from the consensus on that as we were earlier in the year. And in the US, you know, we're no longer above consensus. I think the recovery is going to continue, but I no longer have a bullish cyclical view just in terms of the growth outlook. So it's a bit more complicated than it has been for really most of the post, you know, March, April 2020 period. And it's a little bit harder to summarize in one word than it was. Another strong view you've held this year is that inflationary pressures would prove temporary. Inflation prints still seem pretty strong. And you've been revising your inflation forecast up at the same time that you've been revising the growth forecast down. So has your inflation outlook changed? For 2021, for sure. I mean, we're now looking for, you know, 375 for core PCE inflation. And this is mainly US. I mean, it's true to some degree elsewhere, but this is mainly the biggest changes have definitely been in the US. 375. And, you know, that's far above where we were earlier in the year when, you know, generally we're looking to sort of two and a half percent or so. So, you know, big upward revision. But I think in terms of characterizing what kind of inflation we have here, I don't think it's really been a change. It still looks very temporary, just as temporary as it did previously. We have not made changes, any meaningful changes to our 2022 inflation forecast. Still have core PCE inflation go back to 1.8%. That's almost identical to what we had previously. Now, of course, if you look at average inflation, average inflation is much higher. So from the perspective of monetary policy, you know, in an average inflation targeting framework, you know, 2021 are not just bygones that will have an impact on, 
you know, effectively the hurdle rate, this inflation overshoot is going to have an impact on the hurdle rate that the Fed's going to assess in deciding when to hike. Now, there's a little bit of a wrinkle here because in addition to the average inflation targeting framework, the Fed also has forward guidance in place in the FOMC statement that basically says you have to be at 2% for hiking the funds rate. And that's a spot perspective. So if you're below two, I don't think they're going to be hiking you know, unless they decided to actually change that forward guidance. And I think they're going to be pretty reluctant to do that. But I don't think you're going to have to be far above 2% for them to hike. You know, If we were at, say, 2.1 or 2.2% in late 2022 instead of 1.8, which is our forecast, it's not that huge a difference. But I think it could have important implications for the liftoff point. It would move forward probably by several quarters. So let's talk about job growth. There's been this narrative that federal unemployment insurance benefits have kept people out of the workforce. It's basically allowed people to make as much money staying at home receiving benefits as going to work. So as these benefits end, you know, what do you expect for the labor market? So we've seen a good pickup in job growth in the last several months after some initial disappointments in the spring. The June employment report was very firm. I think what we're going to find is that the extended unemployment benefits and the $300 per week top up, you know, did have quite a large impact on curtailing labor supply. We looked at the experience of you know, losing these benefits in a number of states, not just by comparing the Republican states that cut the benefits and the Democratic states that didn't, but actually looking at the micro level at individuals that are otherwise identical that lost benefits versus individuals that didn't lose benefits. And we found a pretty meaningful, statistically significant effect. So to us, that suggests that as these benefits end at the federal level, over the you know, September, October, November period, we should see a substantial amount of additional job growth. And we've said one and a half million in total on the back of that expiration that should show up in the payroll numbers. I think the unemployment rate is going to come down a lot. Participation rate over time, I still think it's going to rise from here, but I, I think that's going to be a slow process. And we've actually scaled back to some degree our expectations for how quickly the participation rate normalizes. And, you know, I think even a year out or two years out, participation is probably still going to be somewhat below where it would have been in the absence of the pandemic. So what does this all mean for wages? The fact that we have seen companies struggling to find workers, some of that might be abating, as you said, but ultimately, do we think that wages are going to continue to grow here as companies need to raise them to attract workers? Yeah, I think they're going to continue to grow. What they're not going to do, I think, is grow at these extremely rapid rates at the bottom end of the pay distribution. If you take our production and non-supervisory workers in leisure and hospitality, who on average make $15 an hour, we've been seeing wage growth rates at an annualized pace of 25 to 30% in the last three to six months. You know, obviously far above anything we've seen in many decades or actually ever in these data. And it's, that's not too surprising because if you make $15 an hour with the $300 top up, you know, people are basically as well off or better off from a take-home paper perspective, not working 
than working. So, I mean, this is sort of what you should expect that then get enormous competition for these workers and big increases in pay. I think as those benefits end, we'll get much lower wage growth rates. I don't think we'll get outright wage declines. Wages tend to be quite sticky to the downside. So I don't think you're going to be cutting their wages, but I also don't think you're going to have this kind of wage growth. Elsewhere, you know, higher up in the income distribution towards the, you know, 25, 30 and dollar per hour rate. I mean, their wage growth rates have been reasonably firm, but not out of line with what we've had in the past. I mean, on a composition adjusted basis, we've seen about three and a half percent wage growth, more in the middle range of the income distribution. You know, I think we'll probably continue to see numbers in that sort of range and, you know, steady wage growth. And if we could see substantial job growth, then that probably is going to accelerate somewhat from there. And now, is that a pace that is sustainable? Probably sustainable. I mean, we've seen pretty good productivity growth. But in general, the productivity news has been pretty good. So I think we should be able to sustain somewhat higher wage growth rates than we had in the last cycle, maybe on a sustained basis in coming years. So let's end on the big picture again. We've talked a lot about the virus, obviously a key determinant of the outlook, but you know, what do you see as the biggest risks to the US and global economic expectations we've discussed? I mean, I wish I could say something other than the virus, but the truth is COVID variants and additional negative news on you know, variants that are more infectious and escape vaccination, that's still the biggest risk. I mean, you look at Delta, you know, in some ways it's been a negative surprise, but at the same time, the vaccines still work, you know, pretty well from a hospitalization perspective. And of course, we could see a variant that is even more dangerous because the vaccines might not work as well from a severe disease perspective. I mean, I'm not predicting that. You know, I don't know. I don't think the medical experts really know, but that is the downside that I think we have to have our eye on. You know, there are a number of, you know, obviously risks that are maybe a little bit closer to the usual ups and downs of the cycle that are also relevant. I mean, the fact that fiscal policy is coming off of this extremely stimulative level and that we're almost certain to see a significant negative fiscal impulse. I mean, that poses some risks as well. And I do think it's going to have an impact. But the bigger one is still going to be COVID. And some countries are going to be better placed to deal with that than others. Again, I do think that vaccination is still progressing pretty well. We're going to have, we think, 50% of the global population fully vaccinated by the end of the year. That's roughly our timeline. That obviously makes a very big difference, but we're also seeing higher infection numbers than we had hoped you know, three months or six months back. So that race is more acute in some ways than perhaps we had thought not that long ago. So let's hope, Jan, that we don't see a very negative turn in the variants. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to hear insights on the global economy. Thank you so much, Allison. I'll talk to you soon. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and comment. This podcast was recorded on August 31st, 2021. 
All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.